The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, who had the worst result midweek? Was it Latvia losing 20-0 to the Lionesses? Or Norwich not able to beat numerically challenged Newcastle? Or was it Everton in their derby with side with no mercy, Liverpool? Also, running out of time on Tyneside, what's coming up this weekend, and huge events that happened 11 years and 100 years ago that changed the game as we know it. All that and more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Excellent. So here we are. It's Thursday, the 2nd of November. You're joining us. Thank you very much, listener, here on the Totally December. Is it December? (laughs) Is it? If you're on on the Jacobean calendar, yeah, I think. Right. Anyway, that's the sweet, sweet sound of Duncan Alexander, who's on board today alongside Sasha Gurionov. Morning, James. What a morning. Morning to you, Sasha. And Adrian Clock, who's extremely excited, like a puppy. Adrian. Yeah, d- a little bit demob happy. Yeah, right. I might, might be going away. So, um, yeah, right. but this is, I'm, I'm bowing out in style. Prison. Hopefully. <laughs> Adrian's got a special trip lined up and he's very excited about that. But I think there's something that he's even more excited about and it's Bernardo Silva's goal midweek. Is that right? Oh, yes. Goodness me. What a goal. For me, it was the perfect breakaway goal. The pass from Fernandinho down the wing to launch the counter. Then you've got Gabriel Jesus, the nominal striker that's turned into a right winger, playing that just dreamy cross on the run so that Bernardo Silva doesn't have to break stride. And I don't need to say anything about the finish other than to say it was breathtakingly beautiful. I just thought the technique was was so good. So, yeah, for me, that's the favourite, my, my personal favourite goal of the season so far. I loved it. Duncan? It's a good goal. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it's in, in my top five for the <laughs> season. Was it the best goal on Wednesday? Even, um, not necessarily. I don't think. Um, I think fighting talk. I, this is Duncan. Why? I think if you talk about breakaways, the Mo Salah's first goal was arguably a more impressive breakaway. Um, Aided by poor goalkeeping. Um, well, true. Sash. But I mean that Bernardo Silva finish was very good. But it's a sort of rare. You know, instance which I guess is you why sure you want to do excited. this, Duncan. <laughs> yeah, you can hear that. You can hear. No, but I'm, the fact is that everyone knows what Mo Salah is about to do. That that curled right. finish into the far corner. And it, you know, it's the consistency rather than the the scarcity that okay. I like. I think. What What I liked about the silver goal was um, they were speaking to Diash uh, after the game and he was like oh, we don't usually score this type of goal like this counter attack because basically we're usually with the ball and then it cuts to the match of the studio and go yeah this is what Man City are all about I thought it was quite a different <laughs> perception <laughs> Wow there were so many special high quality strikes on, on Wednesday Jordan Henderson Diego Jota ooh a lot of these seem to happen in one game the Merseyside Timo Pukki on Tuesday yeah, I mean, that wasn't bad you know Neil Mopé yeah. yeah yeah everyone's nodding Anyway, all right, well, lots for us to discuss with those midweek games and, of course, a full fixture list on the way this weekend. Just to check, anyway, on the midweek scores, top three all winning Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, Narrowly, in the case of Chelsea at Watford and City at Villa, resoundingly, though, deliciously, if you will, for Liverpool in the derby. The bottom three, meanwhile, all drawing. Burnley nil-nil at Wolves, Norwich and Newcastle on Tuesday with each other. And in between, you had a 1-0 win for Leeds at Palace, a 2-2 draw for Saints and Leicester, 
and a 1-1 for Brighton at West Ham. Spurs, Brentford and Man United, Arsenal yet to play. All right, let's let's sasher off the leash then and, and talk the derby. You're listening to the Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Coleman, and he's in trouble now against Salah. And Coleman trying to get there, can't get there, and is fully and firmly punished by Mohamed Salah. Forget the Ballon d'Or. There really isn't anybody better at the art of goal scoring in world football right now than Liverpool's Mohamed Salah. John Champion there. Bold. Bold. Sasha. Everton won. Liverpool four. I think we thought it might be a one-sided game. I don't know if we were expecting that. I think I kind of was because I, I went to see Everton at Brentford uh, on Sunday for about 65 minutes because then I had to go to Stamford Bridge. Uh, but I think at 65 minutes, I saw enough. Uh, it was a team that very was very workmanlike, but as soon as they conceded uh, the penalty against Brentford, they clearly went to pieces. Uh, there was a particularly stuck in mind against Brentford was this uh, Dini took a free kick and this basically went rose just before half time. And obviously you could see the scenes at the end of the Brentford game, which I... I, I had to see on social media later of Everton fans just basically abusing their team uh, because they were so I think they finally lost their patience uh, completely with what's going on so I think going into the game in, into the derby you could see a lot of problems at Everton including injuries including fan unrest and basically a very unhappy place whereas Liverpool had a had a lovely game at the weekend won 4-0 and looked much more set and we finally you know seen that midfield of um, Fabinho Henderson and Thiago and the whole thing just they were in a very good place. And I think then what we saw against Everton, um, first 10 minutes, Liverpool could have scored five times. And it, this isn't new. The Liverpool have been doing this recently. For example, the way they went out against Atleti, against Manchester United, against Brighton, um, against Atleti at home, they scored, like they really went for it in the first sort of 20, 25 minutes and scored a couple of goals. They even did the same thing against Milan in the Champions League in September uh, when they only scored, I think, the once, but they could have scored five again in the first 15. Mm. Feels like they're trying to go out and blow teams out. And then afterwards, obviously, they can't keep that that pace off for so long they necessarily fall back of course they gifted the goal to uh, to Everton in a way that I think there was a lot of defensive mistakes and what happened there but I always felt that Liverpool had this at arm's length and it was a very important win as well because Liverpool don't tend to win derbies at, at Goodison Park they only won once out of the previous nine the rest were draws and I, I was at that one that was Mane scoring in the 94th minute um, and so this I think I think for everybody, this was quite a big win. And I also felt that Liverpool, after what happened last season, would be on a bit of a mission. Mm. And I also thought they were helped by the fact that Jordan Pickford, from the very first minute, was clearly not quite there because you could see Coleman was waiting for him to come out. They concede the corner and then he was shanking clearances. I think for the two Salah goals, he gets caught in no man's land. I know it's a one-on-one, but you can, you know, improve your chances by holding your position a little bit better. Um, and he ends up conceding in those chances. Then he dives out of the way of Jota's shot. He probably would have gone anyway, but he guesses and uh, Jota, oh. the, the shot goes straight through him. And so I think overall, Liverpool were clinical. Uh, Everton's problems were laid out. And also, you know, you, you could see the Everton fans flooding out with 10 minutes to go. Well, yeah, then, even after 19 minutes. Uh, yeah, so you, you could see the first wave leaving. But the thing is, but this very much ties in you had um was it Matt Jones was on 
the previous pod talking about mm. it. And I think that was very much the mood of Everton fans. I think they expected a disaster and this, this is what they got. Now, to be honest, after the first 20 minutes, I, I think they would have expected more goals to fly in. Um, and uh, But Liverpool don't really do that this season. I think at 2-0, I, I thought they would be stopping there and picking up the baton probably in the second half. Right. So yeah, I think, I think overall everything came together quite well. Liverpool are in great form. Balancing midfield is there. Van Dijk's back. The Salah is in the form of his life, scoring um, about a million goals in the way games. Um, whereas Everton are probably in the lowest ebb they've been in quite some time. So I think it's it's a very logical result. All right, Sasha doing a Klopp's Liverpool there, coming out early, coming out hard, <laughs> effectively <laughs> silencing all opposition. Comprehensive stuff. Phil Gagan, Sasha. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's Liverpool's biggest away win in this fixture since 1982. Only the third time that Everton have conceded four goals at home to Liverpool in a Merseyside derby. There was that brief period in the middle of the game uh, when it looked like they might hold their own. Uh, not the half-time break, although that as well, but the kind of 10 minutes before that as well. But at the end of the day, it was a comprehensive, a shellacking a couple of things I enjoyed. Obviously, last season, this was a disastrous game for Liverpool with Van Dijk and Thiago getting injured. And in, in different ways, they both uh, kind of reacted to that. There was one point when Everton fans threw another ball on the pitch at one point, And the ref didn't actually stop the game. And Thiago volleyed or smashed the ball back into the crowd. And then about three or four seconds later, played a pass out to the to the left flank, which was good. I've never seen a, a player use two balls in such a, a short space of time. And then... In the second half, uh, Liverpool had a free kick just outside the box and it was a rare sight of Van Dijk taking a direct free kick, which you know was because he was desperate to get some sort of you know, revenge. Him scoring a direct free kick at Goodison Park would have been um, you know, a huge statement and not something you really associate with Van Dijk, a sort of generally quite calm leader sort of character. But yeah, you can tell that I think the, the whole Liverpool team was so up for that, that game, the way they started. Um, there was... Uh, there was a lot of vengeance in their hearts, I think. It was the oldest Liverpool team put out onto a pitch in a Merseyside derby for, since 1950. Um, average age was was over 28, coming up towards 29. So they're sort of, it's, it's a team for the here and now, isn't it? This group of players, they seem on a mission to make sure that they can get two titles and that that one wasn't a one-off. They want to win one in front of their own fans, clearly, and and. and the way they're going about their business is incredible. The, the attacking fluency. In Mo Salah, honestly, I never thought that I would see a player in the Premier League as beautifully destructive as Thierry Henry. I didn't think it would ever yeah. happen. I'm seeing one now. It's Mo Salah, really. This guy is, is taking it to... to the same level, I think, as Thierry did in his pomp it is quite remarkable. Just the the craft of his finishes on the back of that that speed and that, that that incisiveness that he brings is is just ridiculous. But I think that's a really good comparison because you know if you're old enough to remember when Henri was at his peak with Arsenal, it was like that in most games. You know, Arsenal might. They might be struggling in a couple of games and, and then Henri would just pick up the ball and run with it and run with it at speed. And it's so rare to see players do that. Um, you know, Messi used to do it and still occasionally does it. But, um, you know, Salah really is in the, the greatest form, you know, as you say, since I think since Henri was, was at his peak. So, yeah, I mean, and just Liverpool in general, that's 18 games in a row now that they've scored two or more goals in, which is a new all-time top flight club record in England, which... 
you know, the the the, t- the team they broke the record of was Sunderland in 1927, and football in 1927 was a very very different sport <laughs> to what it is now. I reckon we could have probably got a couple of goals most games. Um, so it, you know, really is unprecedented. Let's have some more numbers. Forty-three goals in in total this season in fourteen matches. They've overtaken Bayern Munich as the highest scoring team in Europe's top five leagues. They've now scored more Premier League goals this season, Duncan, than Arsenal did in the whole of the ninety-two yeah. ninety-three season. Well, yeah, Arsenal fans got annoyed with that, but I was just trying to. I mean, the the, the other that's comparison. incredible. We're a third I mean, of the way is. into I mean, the season. What I find interesting, you know, you get a lot of people get, who hark on about old football and, you know, modern football isn't what it was and blah, blah, blah. But Liverpool 1970-71 played 42 mm. league games. They scored 42 league goals in 42 games and they came fifth, right? That 1970-71 is overall the lowest scoring season in English top flight history. Sorry, Adrian, I know Arsenal won the double. It does devalue it quite considerably, yes. <laughs> but, you know, this idea that that old football is automatically great isn't the case. I think we you need to appreciate this season in particular because whatever you think about the clubs and how they're funded, some of them, etc., etc., the standard of football that the top three are playing mm. is exceptional. And you know it's very rare that you get three teams playing this well at the same time. So um, yeah, I just so, hope it continues. Yeah, three teams separated by just two points. As mentioned, the other two, Man City and Chelsea. Didn't look quite as comfortable on Wednesday. Both winning 2-1 City at Villa at Chelsea at Watford, where, says Thomas Tuchel, we stole the win. The number of chances for Watford. 14-8. They outshot Chelsea, Watford, which is remarkable. It adds, and I thought the possession stats were just as surprising here. It was virtually 50-50. When you think about what Tuchel brought in initially when he became Chelsea manager, he just made everyone sick of the sight of Chelsea passing the ball around, didn't he? It's not the case at the moment. And, and and I think they're a better team for it, but but he would not have liked the fact that Watford created more chances than they did. I, I thought my big takeaway from this one, from a Chelsea point of view, in a positive aspect, is Mason Mount definitely looks like he's coming back into the, the kind of form that we know he's capable of. Goal and an assist. And he's just got his strength back, basically. And he's going to be important, isn't he? Because... They've got so many midfield players injured at the moment and mm. and out of favour. And, and Sounder Gares is obviously out of favour given that he was once again given, so, given the hook. Yeah, so taken off at half-time, exactly mm. like his first Premier League appearance for Chelsea. Mm. Um, what's so bad about him? Well, in this game, he just didn't get into it. 13 passes, I think he made. I looked at his chalkboard just before we came on air. He made two successful passes inside Watford's half and one of them was backwards and none of them were within 50 yards of the Watford goal. So I think the, the term ineffective is probably the best the, the best word we could use for, for him in that first half. And, and it's brutal of, of uh, Tuchel, isn't it, to, to sub him off and to put Shalabar into centre midfield. That was a message, wasn't mm-hmm. it, with a capital M? Saul really suffers, I think, because of was expected of those Chelsea midfielders. I mean, if you, I, th- I think Tuchel wants control and Kovacic gives him control. And when Kovacic isn't there, when Kante isn't there and Saul has to step into that, I think he really can see how much the level drops. Um, and I think this is probably possibly one of the reasons why we saw such a messy performance. Because I think when Chelsea come up against an up-and-at-them team, like someone like Watford, like 
those last 20 minutes at Brentford uh, back in October, which really stuck in my mind. Again, no Kovacic. And I think in those situations, they just tend to lose... Chelsea tends to lose their mind a little bit, tends to become a bit more stupid. And also in this particular game, wing-backs, so they had Aspilicueta and Alonso, not Chilwell and James. I think that they suffer from that as well. And I was at the um, so Chelsea United game at the weekend, and I think Alonso, okay, he, you know, he set up one of the goals here, but Alonso instead of Chilwell, you can see that they're a different level of player now in terms of decision-making, in terms of movement, in terms of what they contribute to, uh, to the game overall. And then in this game, you also take out James. So I think... Chelsea are actually quite quite heavily handicapped uh, from what their optimal lineup would be. We should give some credit to Ranieri as well because I think you know when he came in at Leicester, he carried on the the Nigel Pearson approach of attacking quite a lot, and then realised halfway through the season that basically defending and getting a series of one nils might be the way to to seal an unlikely title win. But he's coming to Watford and he's realised they're not very good at defending, but they have got some really really good attackers. Um, they're obviously missing Saar last night, but you know Emmanuel Dennis, three million pounds. You know, six goals, five assists is uh, is a, you know that's as good as it gets really, and um, yeah, I mean Watford were ahead on XG at half time and at full time, which if anyone predicted that, they were out some John. Well, <laughs> well, Watford, uh, of course, with a tough run of games at the moment, uh, beaten at the weekend by Leicester. Previous to that, they'd beaten Man United. Next up, they've got Man City, who had that narrow win at Villa, featuring the Bernardo Silva goal and that. Do you see Watford getting anything against Man City at the weekend? Statistically, it's the easiest fixture in Premier League history. This one. How easy, yeah. Duncan? City averaged 3.17 goals per game against Watford. <laughs> right, which, is, which is usually enough. Is so, it easier than Liverpool-Norwich? <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, yeah. the last... In the Pep Guardiola era, you've had a 5-0 win and a 6-0 win at Vicarage Road, a 6-0 at Wembley in the FA Cup final, an 8-0 at the Etihad. In all, it's nine wins out of nine for City in all competitions. The aggregate score, 39-4-3 against. <laughs> Watford, of course, uh, amidst all of this praise, battling for survival at the bottom. They're in 17th place, three ahead of Burnley, who have that game in hand. All right, so looks bleak for them. Uh, Liverpool, meanwhile, are up against Wolves. They have a good record against them. And what about Chelsea at, at West Ham? For West Ham, um, last three games, it's a draw and two defeats. Um, is it the missing Ogbonna? So I think, not that the wheels are coming off, but they, they should have comprehensively beaten Brighton. And that kind of was thrown away. Um, and yeah, it'd be interesting to see like the dynamic of the reaction uh, for West Ham at the moment. Uh, but at the same time, again, Chelsea like are not convincing me right now. So... Um, I think, you know, I think it could, could, could it feasibly be a draw at the weekend. Mm. No, I think they can get a result as well. Antonio, we saw him trouble the Manchester City defence, didn't we, at the Etihad Stadium. I know that he's not in top form in terms of his goal output, Antonio, but he's a menace and he, he will have his moments, I think, against a, a depleted Chelsea rearguard, as we've already outlined. So, no, I, I would give West Ham a chance here. And in midfield, where... Chelsea are light again on, on their star names. They've got Declan Rice and Thomas Suchek, who, who seem to be there every, every week, seem to be able to handle any, any kind of test. And you've got to respect West Ham at home in the light of the fact that they've beaten Liverpool, Leicester and Spurs already at London Stadium this season. So I definitely think it's a decent time to play Chelsea. 
Mm. And and also with Rice, I mean, he keeps on muttering. And again, we saw this against Brighton, just going through midfields like at a ridiculous pace. So I think, again, given the depletion of Chelsea's midfield, I think he basically will be striking at their heart. You talk about epidemics. The the best one this year is uh, the number of people each week that change their mind on Declan Rice. Every week there's another <laughs> thousand name names. People. Name names. Come on. Yeah, just just see it. Just see the wave crossing the nation. People going, I was wrong about Declan Rice. He's really really good at football. So um, and presumably he'll be really you know up for playing well against Chelsea for brackets reasons. Close brackets. Um, go on. Well. Started his career there as a ah. as a kid, and also has been linked with a return there on on many occasions. So oh, in right the then. shop window in Westfield, as you say, brackets reasons very good. Well, that's the twelve thirty kickoff. What a way to start the Premier League weekend, round fifteen of the season. Uh, many more games to be talked about, both from midweek and coming up. Next up, we're going to deal with things down the bottom end. It's the Paddy Power Football Supporters Support Line. We're talking to Burnley fan Graham. What's up, Graham? Oh, it's Christmas, Paddy. Uh, not a Grinch, are you, Graham? Oh, I love all the midweek fixtures, the quick turnaround between games. So why so glum? Well, it's the work Christmas party, the five-a-side drinks, schoolmates, dinner. Makes it very hard to watch all the football. The Premier League is non-stop this December, so make the most of it with Paddy Power's Bet Builder offer. Get money back as a free bet if one leg of your Bet Builder lets you down. Paddy Power. Pre-match online Bet Builder bets only min odds one to five per leg, min four plus legs, max free bet ten pounds per day. Excludes enhanced match odds, T's and C's apply. Eighteen plus. Be gamble aware. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. More than a third of the way through this season, there's an increasing and intriguing possibility that the richest club in the world will next season be the richest club in the Championship. Tuesday at St James's Newcastle facing their neighbours at the foot of the table, Norwich, in a must-win six-pointer, which they didn't. Uh, how bad now is the situation? How much of a magic wand will this January transfer window be? Let's hear from senior football writer at The Athletic and man in charge of North East Vibes, George Corkin. George, thank you so much for joining us. You're so welcome. Excellent. Uh, you were at the game on Tuesday. I certainly was. Yes, I was in the I was in the stand for that one. I'm in the press right. box against Burnley, but uh, yeah, I was in the stand for that one. Oh right, how bad was it, and what was the atmosphere like? Well, the the strange thing is that it was a very very good atmosphere. I mean, it was obviously it was Eddie Eddie Howe's first game uh, on the touchline after his delayed appearance there, what with having kind of COVID uh, for the first match, the the Brentford game, and it was a great atmosphere. <laughs> and I, one of the kind of novelty, one of the strange situations about this, and and kind of still one of the novelties, is that you can go to St James's Park now, and everybody is on the same side because for ten years or more will have had people uh, chanting, you know, very regularly against the owner. Various points, including, you know, in the last 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 little while under Steve Bruce, chanting against the manager, and there's been this sense of a kind of club struggling with itself. The situation now is deeply ironic, bearing in mind where they are on the table, but everybody's on the same side. So the atmosphere was very good, but yeah, it's another game gone. I kind of joked. I joked at the. You know, not not too far into the season. You know, when will Newcastle get their first game? Well, Norwich, obviously, um, and then that didn't happen. Um, so it it feels a bit bleak, really, in terms of league position. But at the same time, there is still a positive atmosphere around the club. It's quite strange. Mm. Kieran Clark's early dismissal 
uh, really paving the way for this disappointing result. Callum Wilson with the penalty, then a uh, uh, fine volley from Temo Puki uh, to make the scoreline 1-1, a crushing blow, as Eddie Howe called it, as Newcastle again failed to pick up three points. No team that's ever gone 14 games without a win mm. has ever stayed up before. None of them, though, many people would say, have had the limitless possibilities that Newcastle might have this January in the transfer window with uh, unlimited funds and a and a, a continent's worth of players to pick from. Uh, realistically, George, how much help do you think that's going to be? Are you expecting some game-changing arrivals or in the lack of any kind of director of football still at Newcastle, is it going to be like a collection of overpriced misfits that, that uh, Eddie has to fit <laughs> into the side at all opportunities? Well... That's one of the fascinations. I mean, for all the for all the sort of talk about Newcastle being the richest club in the world, theoretically they are. That's very much not how they're going to be run. They're going to be run. Um, you know, the idea is that it makes money, not that it loses money. I mean, that's the long term aim. And certainly, when the takeover happened, I was told that the the, the idea would be there might be forty million quid, fifty million quid to spend in January. That's the sort of outlay we were looking at. And, you know, the idea is to kind of build organically. Well, with where they are on the table at the moment, can they do that? And, I mean, I, I, I have spoken to, to people within the ownership group this week and, you know, the, what they're doing is working on transfers at the moment. That is that is very much what they're doing, but they're having to do it directly themselves as we get nearer to, to it. You know, if Newcastle is still adrift, if they're 10 points adrift, which is not beyond the realms of possibility, if you look at their fixture list uh, this month... Um, what do they do? Do they go desperate and do they do they try and spend their way out of it? I just don't think that's what they're planning. I just don't think that's the way the business model works either. But do they start looking towards the summer and rebuilding or do they try and do a bit of both? It's fascinating. It also, you know, one of the things that we've seen throughout the time since the takeover is the fact that they're, you know, they're being seen as a potential cash cow for whether it's, you know, managers and and their agents or players and their agents, what what clauses would would player agents put into contracts that protect players in the event they go down. It's always, you know, the cliche is January is always a difficult window, but it becomes incredibly thorny when you look at all the, all the issues surrounding the club. George, if I can put you in Eddie Howe's shoes, which areas of the team would you strengthen if you were given that kind of war chest? It's not the biggest by the sounds of it. Which which areas need urgent attention? For me, clearly, a new centre-back is, is required, but that's not it. Central midfield, you've got Willock and Shelby, two good players with the ball, not so good without it. That's just two areas. Where would you strengthen? Well, defence, you know, defence is absolutely the biggest the biggest problem. Nobody's nobody's conceded more goals there, but it's it's the ease with which they're conceding goals. It's it's something like two a game, you know, that's the average and you just can't hope to stay up like that. But yeah, um I mean Eddie has put them on a kind of more of a front foot setting, which is kind of fair enough, except that you know, we saw we saw against Norwich. Norwich were pretty hopeless, I thought, but um there's no protection for the centre halves either, so so you do have that you do have that problem. I mean, there are problems everywhere, but I think the centre half centre half possibly two centre halves would be where I would look. I'm also you know they haven't had too much of a problem scoring goals, but I'd be petrified if Callum Wilson got got injured um, again, which 
he tends to do over the course of the season. So I would look for I would look for backup there. But again, that's not easy to do in January. Hi, George. Sasha. Um, also, have I know it's a bit uncertain given how much they're going to be adrift or might not be adrift, what sort of level of players they're going to be. But where are they looking for players? Because I think what we found at Bournemouth, uh, how had a kind of a ceiling of what sort of player he could accommodate and deal with. So do you think, like, after his time out of the game, he has changed or are they still going to be looking in lower divisions? I mean, I think a bit of that. I, th- I think I think ideally you want players who can kind of improve and grow. So if we're talking about it just sort of as a theoretical proposition, what they'd want is players who could come in and who could grow with the team, squad, club over the next kind of couple of years. They do also have a loan, you know, they, they haven't used their loan quota, so that is you know, potentially somewhere where they could do something where they could, you know, spend a bit in terms of wages and not not much out. You know, they they could take a bit of a gamble, I suppose, on loans. But but yeah, I think they're ideally looking at players coming towards the end of their contracts. That's the sort of market they're looking at, young youngish, um, but preferably people who know the division. But I think they're also having to cast their net further further because um, because of how difficult it is. George, you mentioned the, the the vicious set of fixtures between now and that January transfer window, and it's it's a it's a set of games that's called mirrored come the end of the season, yeah. which will see a particularly nasty run in uh, for the Magpies. Liverpool at home, Man City, then Arsenal at home, and then finishing off at Turf Moor against Burnley on the final day. Crikey! And of course, it's Burnley who they face this coming weekend. Uh, beyond the fact that literally Kieran Clark cannot play this time, are there any any other positives for Newcastle from Tuesday night? Yeah, I mean, I was sort of quite. I mean, this will sound pretty pathetic, I think, but um, I sort of got to the end of it. I felt really sorry for the team. Actually, one of the things about this team is that they're very limited. They've been built in a kind of haphazard way. And I spoke to someone within the dressing room yesterday, actually, who sort of said, "This is what you get from years of just of just hanging on. Basically, if if your only if your only sort of remit is to get by, this is eventually what happens." They're very honest players. There's always been a kind of a good uh, collective there, which is something that I kind of I quite like. But that's not saying very much, is it? Really, that should be bare minimum. That should be bare minimum stuff. I mean, that the same person said to me, it would be typical Newcastle to then go to you know to play Liverpool or to or to go to Leicester and win. I just can't see that. I just kind of really just can't see that happening in the current. I mean, I'm the kind of person who looks at fixtures at the start of the season and says, no, we we lose that, we lose that, we lose that. I'm, I've always been like that. It's ingrained in me. But I also have that sort of feeling that this is just one of those seasons and. That's not a very scientific thing, but if you look back to Steve Bruce's first season in charge, the games were going by and you could not explain how Newcastle were getting positive results, but they were. They were winning games, they were awful. I mean, they were genuinely awful and they were winning and you couldn't quite put your finger on why that was happening because there was no there was no sort of data or statistic to, to, to back it up. Things just went for them. I've got the opposite feeling with this season. It's not in terms of great injustices or lack of luck, Nothing like that. But they went to Watford and sort of battered Watford when Bruce was manager and couldn't win. It's things like Eddie Howe getting COVID and not being able to be there on the first, you know, what should have been his first game. So you have that sense of deflation to little things like the sending off after eight minutes in a, in a game that they had to win. It just, it has that f- smell to me of a season that is just not going to go their way. But as I say, I'm, 
I'm a natural born pessimist, so I would think. All right, that. George, you picked the right club. Uh, Newcastle you. hosting Burnley Saturday at three o'clock. George Corkin, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. George Corkin, wow, that run in. You know, with, with Burnley hosting Newcastle, of course, they're both in the bottom three. Is that, do you remember last season when it was going to be Fulham-Newcastle at the end of the campaign? We all thought, oh, my goodness, this is going to be the most amazing last day. And Fulham were kind of long gone but by that point. Oh, it, do you think it's going to be the same this, this time? It is hard to say. I mean, George pointed out how bad Newcastle are at defending and they are, by some way, give up the most uh, expected goals in open play. But Burnley are the second worst. So hmm. I do actually think that if they can keep 11 men on the pitch they do have a chance this weekend against Burnley so and you know we said obviously no Premier League team survived after not winning any of their opening 14 but people might remember Sheffield United back in 1990-91 under Dave Bassett where they went 16 games without a win at the start of the season and then mysteriously got really good over Christmas and and then I think they came 13th in the end so it's not it's not impossible to recover, uh, but I think the next kind of six eight weeks are huge. Obviously, with the with the Christmas schedule and the and the transfer window, so I think we'll know for sure by sort of February whether it's going to be realistic or not. But I wouldn't All rule right. them out yet. Okay, Burnley have already played at St James's Park this season. They knocked the Magpies out of the Carabao Cup, but it was tight on penalties. Burnley, of course, are also. Eddie Howe's former club, he had a brief and not particularly positive stint there in between doing wonders at at Bournemouth. Mm. As for Norwich, still down in penultimate place, when you can't beat Newcastle with 10 men, should you be worried? Yes, they they were really bad. Just so pedestrian. It's a gift, isn't it? A gift from the gods to to have that man advantage in this so-called six-pointer. And they didn't, they played as if, well, we've got, 80, however many minutes, 79 minutes to go and and we'll be fine. And there was no urgency until Newcastle took the lead. I, I thought it was a really bad Norwich performance. And and, and Josh Sargent, I, I, I really don't like digging up individuals, but he doesn't look up to it, certainly not as a as a right winger in that team for, for Norwich. So I don't expect to see him too often in, in that position again. But look, while they've got... Pookie, they've they've got that goal threat, and and Dean Smith is is going to improve them. But that that was not a good performance. I think Newcastle take away more positives than Norwich from that particular night. One thing I would say is that that's four games unbeaten with Norwich um, now, which I think it needs to give them a little bit of confidence. And also in terms of suddenly ten minutes into the game going out, oh yeah, we, we can beat Newcastle now. I don't think they've ever been in this position this season. So I think probably it is quite difficult for them yeah. to suddenly sort of change their mindset and change their, change their approach in that game. So I think at the moment, what we're seeing with Norwich, they're kind of eking out these points. And going, going four unbeaten about a month ago was probably unimaginable. As Sash said, four games unbeaten for Norwich. That's the first time they've done that in the Premier League since Grand Theft Auto V came out, which was something else which shooting mechanics took a little bit of time to get used to. And it seemed like that for Norwich and Newcastle because they basically woke up with like 10 minutes to go and suddenly looked dangerous. But yeah, like Adrian said, pretty much a wasted opportunity. This Sunday, it'll be Norwich away at Spurs. We'll see if they can maintain that unbeaten run uh, under Dean Smith. All right, much more to come. Next up, bit of retro for you. 
We're all driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. According to their own survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Remember the last time you were hiring and how slow and overwhelming it was? Well, you don't need to go through all that again. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. And because you listen to The Totally Football Show, Indeed is going to give you a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash totally. That's I-N-D-E-E-D.com slash totally. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed at Indeed.com. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. And with Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite according to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. And that's got to be good news for all you Man United fans out there, eh? Pre-match bet builders only. Get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs. Max free bet £10. Excludes enhanced match odds. T's and C's apply. It's over 18s only. And please gamble responsibly. Second of December. Thanks, Duncan. Uh, listener. And on this day... Back in 2010, in Zurich, cuddly benevolent charitable organisation FIFA had one of their most infamous days ever. In a few minutes from now, we will know which nations will host FIFA's flagship competition in 2018 and in 2022. England, of course, had been bidding against Russia and Belgium, Netherlands and Portugal, Spain for the 2018 finals. We'll make every visitor feel at home. The FA certainly pulled out all the stops with Prince William joining Bex and the kind of pantheistic David Cameron to extol the virtues of the UK as a venue. But England only received two at the 22 votes and were eliminated in the first round of voting. Instead, Russia. And then a few minutes later, Qatar. Who you recall were going to counter concerns over the summer heat, not by moving the tournament, don't be silly, but with air-conditioned clouds. So that was all right then. Subsequently, this all triggered that FIFA corruption scandal. Hundreds of millions of dollars in alleged bribes to ex-co members. When I say alleged, that's according to the US Department of Justice. Uh, you had Chuck Blazer with his apartment for his cats. You had all sorts of other things. Uh, ex-co members getting rounded up at that Zurich hotel at the crack of dawn. You had Premier League chairman Dave Richards falling into a fountain after accusing FIFA of stealing our football. Anyway, none of it made any difference. Russia held their World Cup and murderous regime aside, everyone pretty much loved it, Sasha. And uh, you could say that England got to sort of semi-host a tournament anyway last summer with half Euro 2020 getting played at Wembley. And it, it's not like that went too brilliantly either. Anyway, there you go. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think with that, uh, I, I remember I was being really, I was really, really surprised um, when, when Russia won. But then um, sort of looking back over it, I think fundamentally, um, like in, in that situation, I'm probably the first time English football misreads the mood abroad um, and how it's perceived. And I think it's possibly, if you want management speak, possibly a lack of soft skills. So I think for Russia, aside from all the other stuff, one person who was very important 
was Vyacheslav Koloskov. Uh, he's like one of those functionaries who, I think he was a FIFA, uh, he was a UEFA vice president. Anyway, he's been in the international football circles for a long, long time. So he knew how to speak to these people, what they like. So basically he could, you know, butter them up the right way, if you like. Right. And the reason I said that Air he quotes on buttering up, yeah. No, right, but, gotcha. but uh, James, there, there, is, there is one thing here. One thing right. that he, I think that you can look at and see that he's not just, you know, other stuff, but he can genuinely be a good diplomat. When Soviet Union broke up, uh, who was going to take on the legacy points? Who was going to take over the club's positions in Europe, if you like? It wasn't necessarily going to be Russia. This wasn't a given. But basically, Koloskov talked them, uh, talked UEFA and everybody into uh, basically giving Russia the legacy Soviet place. Now, at the time, late uh, early 90s, it's not like Russia had money to throw around or presents to throw around. It was, you know, th the bottom was falling out of the whole country. So I think you look at that and you look at how long he's spent in those hallways and stuff. And I think having a person like that on the inside was hugely important for the Russian right. bid. And this is what the English thought, oh, we'll just roll out Prince William or Cameron or someone. This is a completely different world. These people have no influence yeah. on how these guys work behind closed Imagine doors. rolling out David Cameron and it didn't have any impact <laughs> on a major <laughs> vote. Can we, can we just remember <laughs> that one of the all-time great quotes from Dave Richards around that time, which was... Um, <laughs> we have said, a culture. In our country and in Germany, we have a culture. We call it, we would like to go for a pint. And that pint is a pint of beer. It's, <laughs> I think of it quite a lot. This is minutes before he fell face first into the, into the uh, fountain. Into the pool, yeah. yeah. Oh, all right, happy dear. days. Anyway, well, as I say, it all went brilliantly in Russia. Everybody loved it. So there's that. Back to this weekend anyway in the Premier League. Hey, and speaking of football's most controversial announcements, Duncan, your Vardy won't get to double figures is going to be no doubt featuring in a future on this day. <laughs> well, what happened on Wednesday night? He right. missed a really, really good chance. So, yeah. so he's on yeah, nine. I think it was playing on his mind. Yeah, Southampton two, Leicester two. And he maybe had a couple of chances that you, you thought he was going to bury, but he didn't. He's still on nine, still one short of the double figures that he's not going to get to. What do you think his chances of hitting Duncan with the trademark chat sh get banged as as Leicester visit Aston Villa? Hmm? The Brian Little traitor classico, let's not forget, gets forgotten, isn't it? One of the earliest controversies in the Premier League era when Brian Little quit Leicester to take over at Villa. So uh, let's, uh, yeah, maybe that will fire Vardy up. But let's Perhaps. not forget, we've also raised the the Vardy limit to 11 earlier a few weeks ago in the well, you might Bank have of done, England. But your, your mm. prediction is your prediction, Duncan. Well... Retro-engineer it how you will. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, right, yeah. you've made it. That's your bed. Lie in it. It's also uh, the former old firm managers, uh, Derby, and former colleagues at Anfield. Of course, both Rogers and Gerrard were at Liverpool, where you could argue Stephen Gerrard's slip cost Brendan... His chance to finally win a Premier League title is going to be an interesting dynamic when the pair embrace pre-kickoff, as they undoubtedly will, with Stephen saying, good to see you, Gaffer, and Brenda replying, I know it was you, Stevie. You broke my heart. You <laughs> broke my heart. One thing that sticks in my mind is is the, fi is the final Gerrard game for Liverpool, which was at Stoke, the 6-1. Right. After which I think, uh, I, I'm amazed that Rodgers didn't walk after that. So this that, that whole dynamic of Rodgers trudging off at halftime at 5-0 down, Gerrard's final game, it's just like that, that it's not the slip, this is the, the final chapter, this is what sticks in my mind. It's just, it was just awful. Mm. Maybe they'll share a plate of mints at full time instead of Union red wine. Mints. Will Stevie G cost his manager 
his old manager further points here in this one, do you think? It, it, I've been impressed with him, definitely, so far. They held their own, didn't they, against Manchester City? I think he's he he's fighting qualities, and we know he's, he's a scrapper, don't we? That he, He's put that imprint on his team already, and and they've... They look rejuvenated, I must admit. And in Ollie Watkins, they've got a striker that's in in good form as well. I think this is a chance for Villa to beat Leicester. I really do. Leicester haven't kept a clean sheet on the road. I think both teams have scored in, in every away game for, for Leicester for, for ages. They just can't keep a clean sheet. And, and if they play Soyuncu, it just begs the question, how bad is, is Vestergaard? Like, how bad must he be training? How bad must he be behind the scenes because Sorinchu is just having an utterly horrendous season so if if Watkins plays against him stand on him make runs in behind him all day long and and I think that Villa will score in the game and, and I think they've got an excellent chance of winning but 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 Leicester on the flip side have Madison back in good nick don't they he mm. he had he's had four shots in each of the last two games I think in the game against Watford, he also made five chances. He made a couple at Southampton. So, so Madison's Madison's in good nick again. But but I would say that I would make Villa favourites here. It will go unnoticed in most places because they lost the game. But but you can judge a manager on his half-time switches. And Villa was so good in the second half against City. They restricted City to the lowest second half xG they've had all all season, which. Is, and I think he, he's gone in and, and changed their style quite quickly. They're, they're playing a lot more patiently. He's obviously using the fullbacks. And as we talked about a minute ago, I think he's going to... The chance of getting one over Brendan Rodgers, even though they will hug, I think will be a... He will love that. So, yeah, I, I agree with Adrian. I think Villa are the favourites for this, but it should be a good game. I also think good signs for Villa in uh, Leicester defending on corners against Southampton, which was a complete mess. And I think this is this is something which is sort of underrated for Gerard. I think they're quite an analytical coaching team there. So they will be looking at those corners and looking how they can take advantage. Uh, so I, th- I think Rodgers is in trouble in this one. Wow. All right. Well, Leicester midweek held a 2-2-2 draw by Southampton. Uh, Saints, who are down in 16th place, will next up be facing Brighton this weekend in a South Coast derby that neither side get particularly worked up about. Uh, Brighton, who are now nine Premier League games without a win. Seven of those have been draws. Of course, it was a very useful point midweek away at West Ham, courtesy of that Neil Mopé goal. Brighton ending that match with just 10 men because they'd used all their subs and they lost uh, Webster, Lalana and Samiento to muscle injuries. Adrian? I think Brighton need to just back Graham Potter in January and, and give him the money to sign a couple of finishes. Just people with proven goal records because that is the only thing that's stopping Brighton being a really good team in my opinion. I, I think they're they're excellent in most departments but but can't finish. Um, so yeah, he needs to be backed and they need to maybe push the boat out a little bit with their, with their wages. I think they missed out on too many good players, Brighton, in recent seasons because I think Potter is a, a coach that good players would want to work with. One thing I'll say, I worked on the uh, Leeds game. I did co-commentary on, on, on the goalless draw there at the weekend and Lamptey was sensational. Absolutely brilliant. We've waxed lyrical about Livramento, haven't we? A former Chelsea whiz kid that sought his sort of fame and fortune elsewhere. Uh, the same can be said, of course, for, for Tarek Lamptey. And I think he, he might be a little bit better than than Livramento. He, he, he's been playing very advanced. 
he skinned Junior Firpo. Now, that's not hard because he's, he's a bad defender for Leeds, but he absolutely skinned him. And, and he was also good at, at West Ham with the, the way that he provided the goal for Neil Mopé. So, yeah, Lamptey will cause Southampton problems in, in this game. Um, yeah, that's my, that's my assessment. Fantastic. All right then. Well, that's Saints Brighton. Other fixtures coming up this weekend. You've got on Sunday Leeds against Brentford. Man United will be hosting Crystal Palace. Two o'clock Sunday. That should be Ralph Rannick's first game in charge. Permits permitting. Palace actually won that fixture last season. And the season before. And the season before, Duncan. Crikey. Mm. And uh, the other game on Sunday is Spurs against Norwich. Hey, the last time these two teams faced each other, Norwich won. Eric Dara ended up in the stands. Do you remember? Mm. Mm. It'd be interesting to see what sort of atmosphere there is at Old Trafford for, for Crystal Palace. Um, I, uh, I ended up basically in the way end on Sunday with surrounded by United <laughs> fans because that's where they have the... Um, Kind of the, the, the pitch side did, video section, if you like. Did they recognise you? Because you look nervous in that photo. <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually, a listener did recognise me at halftime, but he was a Bristol Rovers fan there with his mate, who was a United fan, and I was a bit like, ooh. Um, but yeah, so and I, just to, as an observation, I thought again, I think the away fans are kind of the sort of heartbeat of, of the fan support, and I thought on the one hand that away fans felt quite. They weren't as loud and brash as they usually are. They felt quite, I think, humbled by recent experiences. But on the other hand, I thought they were quietly quite positive about the word about their players. There wasn't really that anger that you see, I don't know, currently with, say, Everton fans towards everything. Mm. I think there was kind of... It felt like they were kind of reflecting what happened to them recently, but they were quite... I can maybe open and positive towards the the players that they had and what might come next. Um, So... I don't know whether it is quite optimism, but certainly Rangnick, I think, has uh, uh, he, he certainly doesn't have the fans on the other side. I think everyone kind of feels in a sad way that Solskjaer, yes, that that had to be finished. But then for the next guy coming in, uh, I don't think there is really anything, any sort of negative feeling from the very start. I think they're hoping for something better. I don't think it's going to be an easy start for Rangnick. I really don't. I know that Palace have, have had a little bit of a wobble. They've lost their last two games, but tactically Vieira is smart and we know he likes Old Trafford. He'd love to go and win win there, wouldn't he? And 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 defensively, they don't give much away. In open play, second lowest expected goals against to Manchester City, Crystal Palace. You just wouldn't expect that of them. And and if they could defend set pieces, which they can't, they've let in ten, they'd probably be in and around the top six. Ten goals com- conceded from from set pieces this season, Palace, take those goals away, they're right up there with the, with the better teams, aren't they? So I think this is a tough start for Rangnick United. Palace have lost five points from goals conceded in the 90th minute this season, which you know backs up the point that they, they should be a lot higher at the table. But imagine they do that on Sunday against United and imagine the, the Fergie time headlines as, as United score a 93rd minute winner. Mm, I it's, wonder who, who might get that one. Hmm. Hmm. All right. Anyway, there you go. The other fixture this weekend is actually on the Monday night and it is Everton against Arsenal. The Toffees did the double over the Gunners last season. We'll address uh, what happens in those games, but obviously not the Everton-Arsenal one in Monday's edition of the Totally Football Show. Next up on this, though, we'll be talking about the most insane game of the midweek and a huge week coming up for women's football. First, here's some odds with Carl Monaghan of Paddy Power and producer Charlie. 
It's the most wonderful time of the year. Cold air, hot bovril, strained hammies, wall-to-wall football, that's what I'm getting at. And wall-to-wall odds. Carl Monaghan from Paddy Power knows all about those. Carl, it's Pep Guardiola's Man City up against Watford on Saturday, and that usually means a tennis score, sometimes a rugby score. Well, Charlie, Pep City slickers are on a decent run at the moment despite a few injuries, and with the hectic festive period only around the corner... Guardiola will be looking to get his deck back in order. Like you say, Charlie City have been handing out ass whoopings at Vicarage Road like loaves and fishes over the years. In the last four visits, they have won 4-0, 2-1, 6-0 and 5-0. Ranieri's Hornets are a 10-1 shot for the shock win this weekend. The draw is 5-1 and Man City are odds-on a 2-9 for the more than likely win. So City at that price may boost your acca for sure. But if you are expecting it to be raining goals at Watford, how does 18-1 to 1 sound about City winning the game 5-0 or even 40-1 to 1 about a 6-0 win for City in the correct score market? Mm, another surprisingly one-sided affair is Wolves v Liverpool, as we've been hearing. But I feel like Wolves have the tools to get a result. Are those feelings wrong, Carl? Yeah, both sides come into this one on the back of bruising encounters in midweek, Charlie. The new manager at Manu, Bruno Lager has made a bright start to his Wolves career and has freshened up the squad with some new ideas and more upbeat vibes. No offence, Nuno. The return of their attacking focal point, Raul Jimenez, has been crucial and they've also benefited from adding feisty South Korean attacker He Chan Hwang to the Wolfpack on loan from Leipzig. But Liverpool are in town, Charlie. They command respect and with last season's erratic form in the rearview mirror, and their outrageous firepower up top scorching opposition defences for fun. Klopp's men look to have the tools to be part of this title race for sure. They are a 4-1 to one shot to lift the Premier League title, Charlie, and are 4-9 to nine to win at Wolves. The draw there is 7-2, and the Wolves' win is a massive 11-2. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply, and when the fun stops, stop. Also out on Thursday is the Offside Rule podcast, ahead of arguably the biggest week of the season so far in women's football. Got the Women's FA Cup final on the 5th. Chelsea Juve in the Women's Champions League on the 8th, and the next day, Arsenal Barcelona. Yikes. Crikey. Well, to, to tell us a little bit about that, but also the Extraordinary England game midweek, we're joined now by the Athletics' Flo Lloyd-Hughes. Hi, Flo. Morning, guys. How are we all? Very good. Good, yeah. thanks. Well, yeah. thank you. And yourself? Yeah, not too bad. Not too Excellent. bad, yeah. How are Latvia? Um, probably a little bit sore, um, a little bit bruised physically, emotionally. Um, it was a strange evening. It was a really strange evening. It was unique to witness it. And actually, when it comes to England performances, I think it's the best I've seen them play under Serena Vigman, even in these those other the other game against Latvia and a game against Luxembourg and, and in big wins they've already had under her in this qualification campaign. I think that's the best they've played um, from a t- attacking point of view, definitely. But at the same time, watching one team beat another side 20-0 is very strange. So this was England-Latvia, World Cup qualifiers for 2023, right? After six games, England have a goal difference now of plus 53. In this game, they had 35 shots in the first half and 28 in the second. 20, 20 goals in 90 minutes. That's a goal every what? Four and a half. 
Four and a half minutes. Thanks, Sash. What's that? I've never seen anything like that. Flo, have you ever seen a game like that before, even from England's women's? The Linus's? Never, never like that. Yeah, it was, it was really hard to keep count, actually. There were a couple of times I sort of lost track of how many hat-tricks there were. There were four hat-tricks in total. Someone did tell me that was, there was once a friendly between England and Aruba that was 40-0, which is oh. England's record non-competitive match. But their record was 13-0, so they, they blew that by some margin on Tuesday night. It obviously opens up these questions about the competition within women's football and and the gap across the the continent and across the world, which I think is an important conversation to have. And Serena Vigman, the England manager, acknowledged the fact that this is not good. Um, You know, no one wants to see these score lines and England want to play competitive games and Latvia want to play competitive games. I mean, England haven't lost a World Cup qualifier since 2002. So it's not rare for them to be really good in qualification. It's just I think those score lines are a little bit worrying for a lot of the development of women's football. And I think there are solutions to it. You know, maybe looking at something like the Nations League, which personally I think when the Nations League came in a few years ago, most people probably thought, what is this and what's the point of it? But actually I think it's been quite successful in many ways to bring nations closer together and play more competitive games at a you know, higher level with teams that are on a level with each other and also create a bit, little bit more interest outside of those qualifications and also give you an opportunity to qualify for a major tournament, which I think is really important because for so many of these nations, it is almost like, what's the point? Mm. Well, for England, as you mentioned, four hat-tricks. One of them came from Ellen White, who took just nine minutes to get the two goals she needed to become the Lionesses' all-time leading scorer, surpassing Kelly Smith, who's written her a lovely piece on The Athletic, actually, Uh, saluting her. Yeah, it's a a funny one because I think lots of people have maybe looked at this record and and thought it feels strange Ellen White breaking it in these circumstances. Um, She's obviously had more opportunities than Kelly Smith had just because of the generation that she's in and the opportunities that have happened as a result of the development of women's football. Um, but they're also very different players. You know, Kelly Smith was a bit more of a flair player, a bit more of a creator. She was much more of a global name. Ellen White did finish, I think, 16th in the Ballon d'Or rankings, but she is not a traditional Ballon d'Or player when you think mm. of the, the players that win those awards. Um, she is a very traditional centre-forward. She's the sort of player that tucks her shirt into her shorts. She gets down and dirty. She's you know quite grubby. She doesn't score many goals from more than maybe 10 yards out. So she's a very different sort of player. Um, and I think the fact that she's also not having the best season for Manchester City makes the whole thing... Um, not weird, because that's, har- that's harsh on her, but it does just seem strange probably to break it in these circumstances. But at the same time, Ellen White's been phenomenal for England. She's carried them through major tournaments, both the World Cup uh, in France. You know, England wouldn't have gone as far with- without her. And also Tokyo, Team mm. GB, you know, she scored a hat-trick in the quarterfinal against Australia and Team GB still managed to lose. So she must um, she must feel like she's been carrying that team a lot. Um, and she's, she's only 32, which, I mean, I think she's still got a couple more years probably to add to that goal tally and now she is also a sort of a guaranteed starter with that record surpassing 100 caps if she stays fit even if she has a poor season with City for the rest of the campaign you'd think that she can't really be dropped to be honest so it's it's a weird one for England because there's a lot of positives to take but at the same time ahead of a home Euros you kind of look at this and say how much are you learning? Mm. All right well uh, a fantastic result for England. Uh, meantime, 
Let's have a word about the cup final. God, I'm so psyched for the cup final on Sunday. Right, Flo Lloyd Hughes. Feels like the build-up. Profound tweet, isn't it? It's a profound tweet. No, but it's nice because you say after it feels like the build-up for Christmas, and we can all we can all empathise with that with that sentiment. So this is last season's FA Cup final, and Flo, first of all, really interesting choice of dates for it. Yeah, so they've chosen to play it on the 5th of December for to sort of mark the anniversary that women's football was banned many years ago, 1921, I think it was. So mm, yeah, 100 years. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a significant date and I understand why the FA have done that and I think it's an important thing to do. So they could have played this cup final a lot earlier, but they have decided to wait until the 5th of December in order to mark it with this anniversary. It's also the 50th anniversary of the Women's FA Cup. So there's two big anniversaries. And also, I think it's an absolute dream final if anyone in women's football or just football in general could have picked two teams that they would have liked to have played this final. It would have been Arsenal and Chelsea, two of the informed sides at the moment. They're going to be battling it out for the title. There's a brilliant rivalry between the two clubs already and there's a brilliant rivalry between Emma Hayes and Jonas Eideveld developing as well after that opening game at the Emirates in which he dropped to his knees in celebration and definitely ruffled a few feathers celebrating the first win of the season like that. It was a bit of a potentially over-the-top um, you know, way to, way to celebrate your first league win and I think Emma Hayes will definitely be looking at and thinking, I would like to get a little bit of revenge, get a bit of a scalp. And for Chelsea, it's potentially getting a quadruple, domestic quadruple, um, which Emma Hayes, you know, keeps mentioning the fact that they did win the Community Shield, which obviously I know a lot of people don't care about that trophy that much. But yeah, they did win the Community Shield in 2020, 2021. So if they do win on Sunday, it would be a domestic quadruple, which would be huge for them. Um, And also for a lot of the players, you know, Sam Kerr's talked about the fact that as an international player, she knows the history of the FA Cup and a lot of people in the Chelsea squad have won that have won that trophy and she hasn't. So I think it's going to be a really, really good final. Some of the best players in the world will be playing. Hopefully around 50,000 will be there as well. So it's really like the, a dream game, I think, for a lot of football fans. 50,000, that's a, that's a terrific crowd, isn't it? Who do you think is coming into the match in, in better shape than Arsenal or Chelsea? Because it feels like Arsenal was sensational at the start of the season and, and now they're just very good, whereas Chelsea have maybe got a little bit more momentum. How do you see it? I do think Chelsea have got a little bit more momentum, actually. I spoke to Emma Hayes earlier this week and she certainly feels that way as well because that first game of the season at the Emirates, she had players who had only just returned from the Olympics or returned from holidays after the Olympics. So we only saw Sam Kerr and Frank Kirby for about 10 minutes that day, whereas they're well up to full fitness now. Sam Kerr is coming back from international duty in Australia, so there'll be you know some of that factored in. And also because of the COVID restrictions, far more care has to be taken now when players come back. They have to take PCR tests and isolate and all that kind of thing. So... In terms of training and time, both managers, I don't think are going to get a lot of time with their players. But Chelsea have certainly moved on from that opening game, have a very full strength squad, apart from maybe Panilla Harder, who might be uh, still not fit enough. Whereas Arsenal recently lost Leah Williamson to a hamstring injury and then Jen Beattie got injured while on Scotland international duty and her fitness is still a question mark. So could potentially have a centre midfielder in Leah Volti filling in at centre-back, which she has done before, but that would mean Lotta Webber-Moy still a, 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 a young centre-back playing alongside a centre midfielder or Anna Patton, also a very young player playing at centre back so 
two two sides with issues in in different ways. Um, but I do favour Chelsea in this one just because of how much momentum they've built, like you said, Adrian, and um, just the winners that are with, within that team. You know, Emma Hayes has worked with this group now for a couple of years. There's only a few new players that have come in, whereas Jonas Adeval is still trying to work out his best starting eleven with having so many new players and trying to work out how they can all slot in at once. Flo, you've got a piece up at the moment about Emma Hayes and Jonas Edeveld and uh, also another piece coming out next week on The Athletic. Yeah, so two pieces that should be up this weekend ahead of the cup final. Uh, a really, really nice piece that I chatted to lots of fans and, and, and a, a player as well in the women's game about couples within women's football and visibility and the impact that... People like Magdalena Eriksson and Penilla Harder and their their visibility in women's football and their sort of unashamed queerness, the impact that has on a lot of fans. And spoke to an 18-year-old fan in, in Iraq who has had a, a very difficult time sort of coming out to her family. And, and people like Magdalena Eriksson and Penilla Harder have sort of changed, changed her life, really. Um, so that should be coming out on Sunday, you know, just in time for the cup final. And then another piece as well this week, I think it'll be coming out uh, Friday or Sunday. Saturday about Yunus Adeval and Emma Hayes and, and looking at the, the great rivalry that's that's being built between the two of them. Brilliant stuff. All right, well, listen, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you enjoy uh, Sunday's action and we'll catch up with you again soon. It's a huge weekend then uh, in the Premier League and beyond and Monday's show will have the reaction uh, to the FA Cup final and, of course, all those Premier League games as well and other stuff too. That pretty much brings us to the end of today's Totally Though. Uh, many thanks for being with us today. Is there anything else you want to add? Oh, yes, I, I Ash could, does, yeah. Yeah, I could add one small thing. Um, Go I, I'll on. share on my Twitter. I'm currently watching um, the footage of my colleagues from Russia who went to Tiraspol uh, to film around Sheriff against Inter. Mm. And um, it's been subtitled, so you know people people can watch it and actually understand what's going on. And I think the overriding, uh, sort of my overriding sentiment is, A, how weird it is, but also talking of big mismatches, as we've just been talking about sort of Latvia, England. So Sheriff, um, they, they went to film a top-of-the-table clash um, in the Moldovan League. And it's effectively playing combined counties on a Sunday and Champions League on a Wednesday. It is an absolutely extraordinary contrast. So um, I'll, I'll share the link and I advise people to check it out because this is, um, it, it, is, it must be just such a weird environment for players to play in because it's officially the same players and they mm. are playing equivalent of English non-league. One day, and the next day they're playing into the Champions League, and it's, it's just again, it's an extraordinary story. Uh, your Twitter address for people who want to see the link that you shared, Slasher, is a slasher with four R's. Right. Okay. Uh, very good. Excellent. Flo, Adrian, Duncan, Sasha, producer Charlie, George earlier, and you, listener. Many thanks. We're back on Monday. Bye for now. Have a great trip, Adrian. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.